Disrupting Japan, Episode 25. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Today we sit down with Hiro Maida and talk about startup accelerators. Now, Hiro is the creator of both Digital Garage's Open Network Lab and the Binos Inception Program. These are two of Japan's best known startup acceleration programs, but their approaches are very, very different. And naturally, we talk about both the past and the future of startup acceleration in Japan and the critical differences between the good ones and the bad ones. But what impressed me most about our conversation was Hiro's commitment to running his accelerators just like startups. Now, we dive into the fundamental reasons behind the attraction that Japanese VCs now have for Southeast Asian markets, as well as the reasons behind what we both see as the coming hard times for startup accelerators and the coming good times for Japanese startups. But I'll let Hiro explain all that in his own words. So let's get right to the interview. I'm sitting here with Hiro Maida of Benos. Formerly, the man who founded the Open Network Lab with Digital Garage. And today we're going to talk a lot about accelerators because you're the man that knows. <laughs> Thank you. So, thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into it. I'm really interested in your experience in、mm-hmm. setting up and running the Digital Garage Open Network Lab Accelerator.、Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a bit about it and what your goals were in, in starting that accelerator? Yeah, so, so this was、uh, back in 2010. So, so, so it was right after the Lehman crisis, right? It happened in, in 2007, and then 2008, 2009 was like everyone, no one was investing in startups in Japan.、Right. So it was basically myself,、uh, Joey Ito, who's currently the director of MIT Media Labs, and also the founder of Binos, or the former founder of Binos, Teru, and then the, and then the CEO of Digital Garage.、Uh, we all kind of got together. And we were discussing what can we do, right? Okay, let's back up for a yeah, second. Yeah. How, how did all these people end、mm-hmm. up in the room getting together? Because that's a pretty diverse group of, <laughs> of people right there.、Uh, other than myself, those three actually knew each other.、Uh, and they always wanted to tr- do something, right? And Digital Garage was just moving into their new office,、uh, and they had some extra space. So it actually started off with what can we do with this space? Okay.、Um, and then I got pulled into the discussion, and then I was, I was at the time really lo- looking into. Techstars and Y Combinator, right,、uh, right. The, the two accelerators in the US that were starting to do very well. I basically proposed that why don't we just do this in Japan? So you, you were trying to replicate what was happening in, in San Francisco、mm-hmm. and in, well, in Boulder in the、yeah. case of Techstars, but、exactly. happening in the States.、Mm-hmm. You were putting this together, you were learning as you were going.、Mm-hmm. It's been up and running now for five、Ooh. years? Yeah, I think five years, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. When you're running an accelerator, How do you measure the success of the accelerator? Is it the return of the portfolio? Is it the number of companies that are still in operation after four years?、Mm-hmm. How, how do you measure success from the accelerator point of view? As an investor, the closest way to measure success is return on capital and, I guess, markups, right? So, like, right. How, how much more valuable your portfolio is. And, and we're right now roughly about like 20x markup. So, our entire portfolio is, is 20x more valuable than we. Than it initially was. All right.、Um, which is pretty good.、Uh, we'll see how much of that becomes cash.、Uh, right. And I'm hoping it'll be somewhere above 10x. So that's one way to kind of measure success. But I actually think the purpose of an accelerator, 
I mean, we do have fiduciary duties to, to make big returns, but the other thing that we have to do is, is increase the success rate of startups to get to the next phase, right? And so the other thing we look at is actually how many of the companies that enter our incubator or accelerator are able to raise money from VCs, right? right? Um, and I don't know what the exact number is right now, but at one point we had 70% of the companies that go through our accelerator were able to raise their next round whether it was $100,000 or $500,000 or a million dollars. That's pretty That's pretty good. Listeners in San Francisco mm-hmm. wouldn't be particularly impressed with that number. Yeah. But anyone who's been dealing with startups in Japan mm-hmm. for the last 10, 15 years mm-hmm. knows that's extremely impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, we, were, we were proud about that. We were pretty proud about that. Well, actually, that brings up a good point. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a real Series A crunch in Japan mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. What do you think is behind that crunch and what's the best way to solve it? So to be honest, there aren't that many Series A investors in Japan to begin with. Right. There's only a handful that you can... And so what probably happened was we had more seed accelerators emerge, more seed-funded startups. Those seed-funded startups are having a much harder time raising money. Here's the dynamic Mm -hmm. I I see, and let me know know what you think. Mm -hmm. The nature of starting a company has changed. You can do it with much smaller teams, Mm -hmm. with much lower amounts of capital. Mm -hmm. So... The economics favor not only lots of people starting companies, but investors making lots of very small Mm $10,000 to $50,000 bets. Mm -hmm. So we had a whole emergence of Mm pre-seed and early stage financing come up. But the people who have to step in next and set a price and put in three quarters of a million dollars seem to be the same people that were doing it 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that is the case. I mean, yeah, I mean, there isn't, I don't see that many new funds being formed that invest in this in the Series A or B range. It's usually the same kind of people, the same brands, pretty much the same people, right? And, and it does seem that most new funds are focused on seed, early stage. Mm-hmm. It's the, 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 the strategy of lots of small bets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what about uh, some of the larger funds now, the Incubate Fund? Mm-hmm. I mean, these mm-hmm. are funds with hundreds of millions mm-hmm. of dollars. Mm-hmm. If there's not enough startups to yeah. invest 10000 yeah. You can't invest that $10,000 at a time. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not sure what their exact strategy is with, with raising a $100 million fund in Japan. My guess is they want to do more in, in emerging markets like Indonesia. Yeah. And the other is they want, to be, they want to be able to fund the full stack. So they want to be able to fund the seed, the Series A, the Series B, and C. So they keep on doubling down on companies that are doing well in their seed portfolio. A lot of Japanese investment is going to Southeast Asia mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. What's the draw? Because like Indonesia or the, the emerging markets are five years or less behind of what's going on in Japan. And so as an investor, it's, it's kind of predictable like what are the next things that are going to emerge. And so after the marketplace, it's probably the payment. After the payment, it's probably price comparison. After the price comparison, it's probably some uh, storefront hosting. And after storefront hosting, so on, right? So there's, there's a lot of things that you can, you can do a lot of pattern recognition with emerging market. Are, are you investing... Well, both you personally and Japanese investors mm-hmm. as a whole, mm-hmm. are they looking to invest in the Indonesian version of Uber? Are they looking for not copycat technology mm-hmm. necessarily, but business models that have been proven elsewhere? Yeah, that's pretty much the main draw. The other one is predictable. The second is just the upside. So the growth rate in population, the growth rate in GDP, 
those metrics are like, especially in Indonesia and India, is is phenomenal. The demographics are fantastic. As an investor, you know your responsibility, or if you want to really want to be a good investor, like you should shoot for the upside, like the biggest right. upside possible, right? So the logical conclusion you would get to is let's enter a market that's growing and growing fast. When you're when you're going to the Southeast Asian markets, mm-hmm. what is the exit you're looking for there? Is it a local IPO? Is it an acquisition by a more powerful global player mm-hmm. with the same business model? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you get out? I mean it's both. So there's gonna be MA activities, but we can also expect IPOs. So what's kind of happening there's a lot of that are a lot more companies outside of New York that are being listed in New York on the New York Stock Exchange. So the Alibaba went listed, listed, got listed on right, in, right. In, in in New York. Probably the next Alibaba will come from India, right? And we may see like an Alibaba equivalent coming from Indonesia. the The local IPO market is not that attractive, but the New York Stock Exchange is attractive, and we're seeing patterns where more and more companies are looking into becoming a Delaware incorporated company and so that they can get listed. But then we also see roll-ups, right? So we'll probably see more M&A activities, uh, a larger conglomerate basically buying companies so that they can get uh, market share in, in, the, in, in the emerging markets. All right, let's talk about the other accelerator you started, which has a very different model. Mm-hmm. And Benos is, it's a, what was a very powerful e-commerce company that's mm-hmm. now pivoted mm-hmm. to be primarily an investment, startup investment firm. Yeah. But the um, inception program mm-hmm. that you led, mm-hmm. well, why, why don't you tell us a bit, a bit about that? Because you can explain it better than I can. Yeah, so Venos, they originally were, were called NetPrice, which is an e-commerce firm back in 1999, uh, got listed on to, in 2004. And since 2004, uh, they started building companies themselves and at, at the same time investing in companies, primarily in the, in the e-commerce ecosystem, right? Right. Um, and we're actually seeing very good successes. Uh, around like 2011, 12-ish, it became interesting for Binos to basically try to, to make it a process so that they can kind of build more and more companies like that. Okay. Right? And so the Inception program was actually part of that initiative to try to build the next Tenso, the next Brandier. Uh, and it's a very, very different model from accelerator. So accelerators, you pay what take five percent equity. Exactly. The inception program is the total opposite. So we would take anything from ten to maybe seventy percent of the company, right? And all the talent is in house, and uh, we would try to build subsidiary companies, basically. So I mean, seventy percent mm. is, uh, you know, a lot of founders would be oh yeah outraged at the oh, suggestion. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you're saying all the talents in-house, mm-hmm. the founder mm-hmm. would not necessarily be a, a Binos employee, mm-hmm. right? The founder is from outside, and you match them up with design and engineering re- resources mm-hmm. within Binos, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 70% is a big, it's a big chunk. Yeah. So what, what, what value uh-huh. do you add? Well, I, well you know, walk, me, walk me through the process. If I'm a new founder and, and I'm joining this program on the first so, day, what happens? So to be honest, it's not for everyone, right? right. It's not for everyone. Obviously, if you, if you have the capabilities of building a startup yourself, you should go for it. And, and, but the, the founders that we've been able to attract are more people who have a strong interest in building and operating companies, but yeah. don't have either the inspiration or the idea that they w- they want to work on basically, but they have more of the passion for operating companies and building companies. So you're searching for more of uh, MBA types. Yeah, Who's I guess the ideal founder. So so the ones who perform well are like ex consultants or ex. Uh, actually, so like one headhunter is actually leading one of the companies we we spun out, and so people who who just likes operation basically, who, who likes to 
optimized on operation, loves to work with people, loves, loves to uh, build organizations and those kind of things. And to be honest, they don't have really a, a strong conviction on the idea. Okay. What's fascinating about mm. this is you're mm. describing someone who would not normally be considered an ideal founder at all. Oh, yeah. Right? Definitely. You know, definitely. You're, you're, you're definitely. saying it's like, definitely. you know, it, it's not, you know, they, they don't have a ridiculous conviction in their, their vision. Yeah. They're, they're more flexible. Exactly. So it's the total opposite of what OnLab would look for. Or right. Like, right. Look for. Yeah, basically it's the total opposite. So, it, you know, usually you want someone with conviction and, and you, should, you should, you know, get someone who, who would basically grow the company until, like, until the end, as, as big as it can. Right. right. And, 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 yeah. So in the inception program, mm-hmm. I mean, what is, what are the founders bringing? What are, what is Binos providing? So is the founder bringing the, the idea? And you guys are providing design and engineering skill. Are you guys, is Venus out there selling the products? Mm-hmm. Can you walk me through a typical case? Yeah, so, so the typical case, we basically have a kind of a, a list of theses, things that we think should be built or exist in Japan. And we would already have developers and designers to kind of prototype the idea and, and validate the idea. And then the founders would come in actually kind of at a later stage. So once the, the product is somewhat validated, they would come in to basically build the validated product into a company. So a lot of these people who, who got brought in to, to spin out the companies actually came in at a later phase. It sounds like a very similar model to Idea Lab. Yeah, so we were inspired by Idea Lab. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we, we actually visited Bill Gross. Uh, ah, all right. And he was very kind enough to share his knowledge. Yeah, we were very inspired by him. How long have you guys been running Inception program? It's still pretty new, right? It's very new. It's, when was that? 2013 or something? We, so we actually ran it for just a year. So it's not running anymore. Oh, you shut it yeah. down? Yeah. Yeah, we, we shut it down. So we spun out two, two companies out of the program and then decided to basically focus all our resources on the companies that are doing very well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why did you uh, wind it down? It was very difficult. So <laughs> it was really difficult. I mean, like, so we have yet to see if, whether or not that's a successful program. This is, no, this is particularly interesting to me because yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen so many companies mm. attempt similar models. Mm-hmm. Okay, Idea Lab, mm. they seem to have done pretty well with yeah, it, but yeah. that's Bill Gross. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I think he'd succeed with any model mm-hmm. he, you put in front of him. Rocket Internet's done mm-hmm. reasonably well with yeah, it. Yeah. But what, what was the biggest challenge in that? What, oh, man. <laughs> First of all, we have a lot of restrictions, right? So one is, is capital restrictions. Because we're a listed company, uh, we have expectations on how much profit we make on the, in the next quarter and those kind of things. So, so the problem of running an incubator-like program like as a public company is very difficult because you kind of become short-sighted. Okay. Yeah, I could when, see that. When a lot of the when a lot of the valuable companies they actually view things much long term, right? They're not profitable for a while. But for us, we don't we don't have that choice. We right, right. we have to be profitable quite quickly, right? And so that gives a lot of restrictions and limitations. Is is one thing. Ooh, and the other challenges are one is, is cultural fit, right? So basically, you know, the company has been around for more than fifteen years. It's really hard to build. A culture that is thriving on entrepreneurship, a risk-taking culture, basically, in a corporation or in a corporate-like environment. Um, well, I could see that, yeah, yeah because I mean, at, at, once you go public, mm-hmm. all the incentives are aligned to maximize the profit for mm-hmm. this quarter. And mm-hmm. Japanese companies maybe don't feel the pressure as strongly as American mm-hmm. public companies mm-hmm. do, but mm-hmm. the pressure is certainly there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When times get rough, yeah. like, wait, why are we spending this on these companies that may 
may turn a profit in five years time yeah exactly exactly so 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 yeah the reason why we winded down was because there were so many restrictions and it, we didn't see it as an ideal environment to be building companies is, is one thing and the other thing is is because Venus is now out of phase they had bigger opportunities like the Tenso, so they're Tenso and Brandier, which is doing very, very well. And it was at like now is the moment to be investing more in these two companies. Right? Okay. So yeah. Do you think if you ha- if you could start it again from scratch yeah. with a private company, yeah. do you think the model is viable, mm-hmm. but just the problems have trying to run it inside a public company, or is the model itself just difficult to execute on? Um, I think the model is viable. Okay. The model is viable, uh, but it's best to start from scratch. You need to be at a, be in an environment where you can basically build your own culture, right? Right. And, and it's hard to build an established environment, and and you don't want restrictions on like you know have a certain amount of profit by the next quarter. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's... and those kind of things, right? Uh, so, yeah, if I had to do it again, I would probably do it as a private company. One of the common complaints I've heard from mm. people trying to execute this model. Mm is that it's very difficult to get follow-on funding. Mm-hmm. When you take your incubated company and you hatch them mm-hmm. <laughs> and you try to raise a Series A, I've heard that the VCs will look and say, wait, wait, you guys have 70% and they have 30 No, we're not interested. Mm-hmm. Did you run into that? Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. Yeah, okay. so actually, we, so we had a huge adjustment on, on our equity stake, right? So we first thought we, would, we can start off by 70 uh, but we actually had to put it down to somewhere between 20, uh, oh, okay. 20 and 30. Uh, yeah, I mean, as VCs, it, it's obvious. So, like, as VCs, you want to invest in companies where, or the founders is motivated enough to basically take it till the end, right? Right. And, and if, uh, if they someone, feel like they own it, right? Right. It's... And, yeah, they need, to, they need to have ownership. They need to feel like it's their company, right? The only way the 70% model would work, I feel, is when the company that owns 70% is willing to keep on funding this company. Right. So like the, the rocket internet model. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Right. So the rocket internet, I think they have a pretty good and interesting model. And they're, they're willing to fund it themselves. Sure, right? sure. Um, although I guess they're fundraising from, the holding company is fundraising from elsewhere. But yeah. Let's talk about accelerators in general. Mm-hmm. We mentioned earlier, for a lot of reasons, there's been this real boom and spread of accelerators all over Japan. Mm-hmm. There's a couple dozen of them in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. What kind of founders should consider joining an accelerator? Mm-hmm. And... What kind of founders are better off taking a run at it themselves? So I think I, I highly recommend accelerators to a lot of the founders, especially in Japan. And the reason why is because the support system in Japan is not as good as Silicon Valley, obviously. But like, it's very hard to get advisors who can help you basically go through the process of, of validating your idea, building a product, and fundraising. Because of the lacking of the support system, it's probably best to go to an accelerator. When you're talking about a support system, mm-hmm. does that include kind of the social support mm-hmm. of a lot of the founders I talked to? You know, their their friends and family were not particularly supportive of their decision early mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Does that does that play a big part in it as well? Yeah, or I think is... so. I think so. So I mean, it's, it's lonely to be an entrepreneur, right? And, yeah. and and so so one is you have a community or a small community of people at least who's in the same accelerator as you who supports you and, and where you can kind of riff your ideas or your, your problems. And the other is because a lot of these accelerators are backed by larger companies, it gives a little bit of validation. If, you're, if you worry about how your parents think of you, then it gives a little bit of validation that, you know, some large corporation is backing you, right? Okay. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is some of that aspect. Primarily, I, th- I feel the startup community in general is not, it's not super helpful, 
to newcomers, right? And, and this, in Silicon Valley, I feel like everyone has this pay it forward kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, and it's relatively easier to get a meeting with experienced entrepreneur, whereas in Japan, it's a little bit more closed. Uh, it is. Yeah. It's a shame. It's starting to change, yeah. but it is. Well, mm. this is something else I found because mm. Japan is very. The whole structure of the society mm. is a very strong concept of inside and outside, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Silicon Valley is very open. Mm. Uh, everyone wants to work with everybody. Mm-hmm. Are most of the accelerators in Japan, are they run like a closed shop? Or are they flexible about working with people from other accelerators? Are mentors in one group willing to go talk with um, a different group? Or is that sense of inside and outside still strong within the accelerators? Yeah, I, th- I feel like the sense of inside inside outside is pretty strong. Uh, so I don't mm. see much collaboration uh, amongst the accelerators themselves. But I see a lot of overlap with mentors, right? So mentors okay. come in and out of different accelerators. The accelerators themselves, I guess, there is a little bit of clan-ish kind of mentality. I guess yeah. there are multiple clans, and they're not really working with each other. And, and those kind of. I mean, but it feels. So instinctively, I'm thinking like, oh, that's that's not good. That's mm. got to change. Mm. But is that? actually causing any damage or is that just kind of the way it is and it's fine from the entrepreneur's perspective i feel like it doesn't make a big difference if as long as you know they have access to strong mentor network right and then since a lot of these mentors especially the local mentors they overlap yeah so i feel like there's no big difference in terms of access okay so the companies Mm -hmm. that graduate from an accelerator Mm -hmm. do they stay in touch do they consider themselves like alumni mm. as it were mm. what, what's what's the experience like post accelerator yeah there's very, definitely a strong bond between especially if they're in, from the same class even within different between different classes of accelerators they 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 interact with each other quite frequently that is good yeah the complaint i hear most mm. often when speaking to to new founders mm. is the difficulty they have in networking for staff networking mm. with other founders networking with other engineers mm. And the fact that the graduates, the accelerators, mm. are continuing on, they're making their own community and growing it mm. is, well, really the only way that problem is going to get solved. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that's happening. Mm-hmm. There's so many accelerators in Japan and mm. God knows how many in the U.S. now. Mm. So from a founder's point of view, how can they tell a good accelerator from a bad one? I think it's very obvious, to be honest. Like, so yeah. it's you, you talk to a few founders and then ask them which one do you think is the best accelerator, and they'll point to you in one direction, right? And so, uh, well, that that comes to a very short list of names. Yeah, usually, both either in the states or here in Japan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's only like one or two really good accelerators, right? And, and um, yeah. So of the other, God, probably thirty plus accelerators mm-hmm. operating in in Tokyo right mm-hmm. now. So you think the, the majority of them are not providing real value? Yeah, I would say so. The majority of them are started kind of off of either trying to get on the trend or they're starting it because, I don't know, their, their CEO thinks they feel like they have to do an accelerator, right? Or, or those kinds. Of, and a lot of these accelerators are corporate-ran, right? I mean, yeah, but yeah. even Open Air Library is corporate-ran. A lot of, for the majority of the accelerators, it's not ran by the right people. Uh, they're all kind of salary men starting these accelerators, and they're doing it just because either their boss tells them to do it or because it's a trend. One of the things that I think you really got right mm-hmm. at Open Network Lab mm-hmm. is venture capitalists and corporate guys kind of running it. Mm-hmm. But you made sure from the very beginning that there was a steady flow of entrepreneurial expertise mm-hmm. involved in coming through. Yeah. And 
I, I find that most of the incubators here don't really have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was almost accidental, to be honest. Like, it was because I was clueless, you know, <laughs> the only people I can seek for help are people who've done it before, right? Or built companies before, uh, yeah, yeah. and those kind of things. So I really relied on mentorship, mentors, right? And, and mostly because I had, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, now I have a, better, a little bit of a better idea. Well, you know, I think... Uh, not knowing what you're getting into is both a blessing and a curse. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> it, it lets you achieve so much more, and it makes you work so much harder yeah, <laughs> than you ever yeah. would have otherwise. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the program did evolve a lot. Uh, I feel like it's now a much better program than it, it was, you know, four or five years ago. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. With so many incubators, mm -hmm. and it, this is true in Japan and the U.S., mm -hmm. it's just a matter of scale. Do you see a shakeout coming in the market? There are not that many viable startups mm. coming out mm. and there are so many incubators yep. throwing yep. little bits of money at yep. them. Yep. Pull out your crystal ball. What do you see happening to accelerators in the next five to ten years? So what's going to happen is probably 99% of the accelerators are going to either shut down or be almost non-existent or inoperable or the the best entrepreneurs would go to the would try to get into the best accelerators right and right. then there's only maybe one or two really good accelerators and there aren't enough entrepreneurs that can basically fill in 30 different accelerators right so they're probably going to enter the the top two accelerators right, right. out of the 30 and so the rest of them would probably seize operation in some way but see, that's, that's going on like right now. Yeah, I mean, and right now is the moment. We're yeah. still seeing new accelerators opened up all the time. Yeah. What, what do you think is going to be the trigger that's going to get most of these accelerators out of the business? It's hard to say. I mean, obviously, if there's any correction in the public markets, since the, a lot of these companies are, are ran by public list companies, there, mm. there would be some response to that. I feel like we'll continue to see more accelerators because people feel like there's still opportunity. And I think, I actually do think there's still opportunity to build a really good, a really, really good accelerator uh, in Japan. And well, so, so yeah. okay, are, are you, so you've built two of them so far. Are you, do you have plans for another? <laughs> I have no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> but you're thinking about it. Probably not an accelerator format. Okay. Uh, not an incubator format either. Yeah, but I do feel there's still, I feel like the number, number one spot is, is still fillable. Okay, yeah. I look forward to that one. <laughs> Let me ask you a few, like, really big yeah. Japan questions, yeah. right? So what do you think is really driving this startup boom in Japan now? And do you think it's something that's, that's permanent? Or do you think it's going to be a fad kind of like it was uh, around 2000? Mm. It's definitely very different from the 2000 bubble or boom. Yeah. Because, I mean, we, we know much more about building especially internet companies right sure and so and people are, are still kind of scarred from that experience so very everyone's still relatively conservative and funding and those kind of things well i have noticed mm. that japanese mm. investors they might they are conservative they mm. might miss out on some of the big deals mm. but they they tend to place more sensible bets mm -hmm. exactly right and, and and because of that i feel at like at least in their domestic investments some of the stuff they invest in the states is another matter yeah that's, that's a different different story <laughs> So we probably won't see anything like a, like a bust going on. So that's probably the biggest difference. 
But I do feel like we're going to see steady growth in the number of startups being built, a steady growth of venture capital funding. Things are changing, right? Things are really changing. So the Sonys or, you know, the, the larger companies are not becoming such an attractive choice of, for career, right? No. It, right? Yeah. And, and, and back then, you know, it was all about, you know, picking one company and spending 30 years there, right? But now it's becoming less like that. Uh, well, it's not really an option anymore. Yeah, right? right? And, that and whole lifetime employment thing is a thing of the past. Exactly. And so the idea of stability is, is kind of fading away. I feel like in a culture, very slowly, though, very, very slowly, I feel like we're going to see more and more people uh, looking into alternative options. Uh, alternative options entrepreneurship is becoming a viable option or almost not, i wouldn't say stable but yeah it's an option that's actually you know realistic and and uh, we'll probably see more growth do you see it becoming more socially acceptable in i mean in our circles mm. obviously mm. entrepreneurship is very socially acceptable mm. but in broader japanese society do you see it becoming a a normal career choice Maybe in 20 years. Yeah. Maybe in 20 years. We still have so much potential. Like Japan, like I, I'm a little bit disappointed we're not growing faster in terms of just the number of startups and the number of venture capital funding. Like we have such great infrastructure. It's such a great environment. I mean, the public yeah. market is not, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's pretty good, right? I'm, I'm surprised we're, only, we're one tenth of the venture capital spending of the U.S. because our population is like a third, right, of U.S. Right. Right. Right? So we should be doing, we, sh- we can do 2x or 3x more, and, and there's still more potential in Japan. And I feel we'll get there. It's just, it might take 20 years until we get there. <laughs> I hope it doesn't take that long. <laughs> so, but, but do you think the, we we're talking about the venture capital investment, mm. do you think it's primarily the problems the supply side? There's just not enough good companies to invest it's in yet? It's, it's yeah. both. You know, not enough entrepreneurs that are looking to start companies and not enough venture capitalists that are looking to fund these companies. So mm. it's kind of like a, 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 it's both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. For the young Japanese mm-hmm. entrepreneurs mm-hmm. who are starting companies mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. what's the, the most common mistake you see them making? It could be because it's kind of engraved in our, in our DNA or culture, but they look for perfection. Okay. Or, yeah, so they, they, they look for a perfect product or a perfect solution, or it has to be in, at least like, built in the way they initially planned until they launch it or have some customer use it. Uh, when they could have probably tested a lot of it before that, like a lot faster. So they well, could, yeah, they, the, they, the idea of a minimum viable product is it's hard for some people to accept at first. Yeah. So I think yeah, actually, so so the concept of MVP is is probably the hardest part of teaching in Japan. I mean, it's it, it's starting to become people are getting starting to get used to it. But like initially, when I was running the accelerator, like a lot of my my work was actually like trying to redefine MVP for them, right? You right. Know, you, yeah, you actually can do this, you know, using some line chat or like something else, those kind of things. You know, like you don't even have to build a product to even provide your MVP to your customers. Uh, yeah, so it's it's basically they they feel like they need to build something. They feel like it has to have all the specul- specs that you know uh, they initially planned and, and those kind of things and. Uh, especially for first-time entrepreneurs, uh, I, I see that as a, as a big pitfall. So they, they need to let go of the need for perfection. Exactly. Well, before we wrap up, mm-hmm. let me ask you, if there was one thing you could change, mm-hmm. uh, if I gave you a magic wand, huh. right, and there's one thing you could change about Japanese culture or society or legal system or anything at all to make things better for entrepreneurs... What would it be? 
to be honest, like I, I wouldn't change a thing. Really? Um, because I do feel we have potential. We can probably become 3x better than where we are in, in every metric. Uh, so you think everything's kind of on the right path? I feel like we're on the right path. And we just need like some agent that would accelerate things, right? Either it's a person or, yeah, it could be a per- yeah, most likely a person, right? Um, yeah. And it's probably my, my job to do that. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, would, I really wouldn't change a thing. Like, even if the supply of venture capital increases by 2x, like, is that really going to change anything? Like, maybe a little bit, right? And, and, but, yeah, it needs to have the supply of the startups to increase along with it. Right, and, and those kind of things. So, yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I, I mm. think that's... Japan is on the right path is mm. a wonderfully optimistic note to, to end on. Yeah, yeah. I think that's great. Mm. So, um, listen, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Yep, thanks. It's fantastic. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. And we're back. Now, Hiro left us with a bit of a cliffhanger at the end regarding what he plans on doing next. Reading between the lines, it's not too hard to see that he has something big planned. And knowing him something very different. In fact, by the time this show airs, he might have already made that announcement. Now, what fascinated me most about Hero's story was his willingness not only to admit that he did not know what he was doing early on, but to embrace it. To embrace your own ignorance and incompetence and then scramble like crazy to improve, and then to keep improving, even when you knew you were the best at this point the willingness to bite off more than you can chew and then chew like hell. If you've got an experience with or an opinion about startup accelerators in Japan or elsewhere, come on over to disruptingjapan.com show 25 and let us know what you think. When you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that Hiro and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. But most of all, Thanks for listening, and thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.